welcome again to our continuing study of the Gospel of Matthew. The Gospel that the Holy Spirit is using to prove that Jesus is the promised, prophesied, expected, and on arrival Messiah. The gospel that proves that what God promised in Exodus, I'm sorry, in Genesis 3.15, through the means of Genesis 3.21, and moving forward through the various shadows and experiences of people, especially when we get to Abraham, and then we move to Exodus and the law. And then we continue and continue through the long history of Israel until finally we come to that great night when the sky was lit up with the angelic hosts. Remember who said, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among men with whom he is well pleased. And so we finally have the promised Messiah on the earth reclaiming God's original purpose as stated in Genesis 1 and Genesis chapter 2. And so as we continue this morning in chapter 13, we're looking at the sermon of Jesus as he uses various parables and similes and combinations of genre to explain the existence of and the reason for and our response in the opposition that always will occur as a believer walks in righteousness. And as we remember last week, and I don't like it any more than you do, I don't like opposition. I don't like temptation. I don't like difficulty. I want a smooth upward trajectory that has no difficulties, no problems, no potholes, no nothing in the way. I want a green light road where all of us are moving at the same speed without any interruptions going to heaven. Anybody with me on that? That's really what I want. I really do want that. It ain't happening. Because every morning when I get up, and I believe the same thing is true for you, when I get into this, this gospel car or truck and get out into the highway of life, I go a few inches, <laughs> hit a pothole. Now, I think those of us from New Orleans understand why you only can go a few inches. You notice I didn't say blocks continuing to hit block, uh, potholes, continuing to see roadblocks, continuing to see things falling from trees, people going through red lights. What in the world is happening? There is an enemy who rules over the world system, who in every ounce of his being and with every motive, he is trying to wreck our vehicles. How do we live in the midst of this? What do we do? What's going on? Well, Jesus in chapter 13 is explaining some of these things, and 
Let's continue this. Father, as we continue this morning, once again we ask, as we always do, you have done this, but we're asking for an increased work. Open the eyes of our understanding. Father, open our hearts to be that soil that produces the great harvest. Father, open our hearts to receive the richness of the water of your word, the nutrients of your presence. Father, that we may continue to grow into trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord for your glory. Father, thank you for what you've done. We're asking for greater and greater work. And Father, yet when we ask for greater and greater work of the Holy Spirit, we know that we are going to encounter greater and greater opposition. But Father, our hearts, we must grit our spiritual teeth and say, bring it on, because in the midst of it, we will be shown, as we always are, Jesus is better. Father, thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. So after, remember using the parable of the sower, remember to explain why some receive and some reject his word, the message of the kingdom. Matthew now continues to use some more parables concerning the growth and the value of the kingdom of the world. Now, before we proceed, let's notice that there are two audiences. Remember, Jesus is talking to two distinct audiences. He's first of all talking to the audience of the crowd. This is, as it were, the world. The same, the world and his disciples, everyone hears the message of the gospel. Everyone who is born into this world hears the message of the gospel. Now, you may say, well, wait a minute. What about all those people who are born over there and have never heard the name of Jesus? They hear by looking at the creation. They can see by looking at the creation. They have been shown by looking at the natural things that there is a God in heaven. That's the beginning ground of the gospel. Amen? That's where the gospel begins, with the very existence of this great creator God. So everyone hears the gospel. There is the world that hears it, and when they hear it, they say no. They reject. And then there are Jesus' disciples or his people who are also in the world who when they hear the same gospel as the world hears it, something in their heart happens. The Holy Spirit changes their hearts and opens their ears, opens their minds and understanding, gives them a great desire and affection, and God changes us and gives us the ability to have faith, which causes us to say yes to the gospel that we have understood by the power of the Holy Spirit. Spirit. So there are two audiences in Jesus in, with these uh, parables, the audience of the world. So Jesus tells them something, and then you'll see, then Jesus turns aside and talks to his disciples and explains to them what they've heard, what the world has heard. Isn't that what he's doing? We all hear the same gospel, but then God tells us the meaning of it. He gives us understanding where the world, those who are not his, hear the same thing but have no understanding. So let's look at the first parable, or the, at least the next one in the row, second one, in verses 24 to 30, the parable of the wheat and the weeds. Now, as we read this parable, let's read it in relation to and remembering the parable of the sower. So let's not disconnect this parable from the first one. Why? In order to get a flavor of the confusion that the disciples may have experienced. 
Because what we do here, when we read these parables, we're reading them from the context of understanding. But they are hearing it for the first time. So they're not hearing it having a commentary or a Bible in their hands, already having read explanations, but they're hearing it for the first time. So let's read it and remember what the parable of the soul was saying, and let's see if we can kind of get a little confused as they were. Now, let's look at, G and, and look at this parable, and let's notice the changes in the emphasis from sower to the wheat and the weeds or the wheat and the tares. And Jesus put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of God may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. Hey, I've heard that before. Where did I hear that? In the previous parable. A man sowed seed in soil, right? A sower, seed, and soil. But while his men were sleeping, an enemy came in and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore again, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, didn't you sow good seed into your field? How then does it have weeds? Where did all these weeds came from? He said, An enemy has done this. So his servants said to him, then, do you want us to go out and gather them? Let's get, you know, let's go, get all the good things on one side and put all the bad things on the other. Let's make a decision to get out into this world and make these distinctions. He said to them, no. Lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at the harvest time I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and then bind them into bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. So, so what in the world? Jesus, Jesus has changed some of the, the similes here. You see, in the parable of the sower, there was one sower, one seed, and two soils. But what happens in this one? We have one soil, two seeds, and two sowers. Now, that's okay, but if I'm listening, having already heard from the other and having that one explained to me, when Jesus begins with this, a man sowed good seed in his field. Okay, I'm with it. I can relate to the one he's just said. And so what he's going to do is give us maybe another example of that type, the different soils. Remember, the three soils that rejected, the one soil that said yes. Okay, I'm with him on verse 24. I'm really with him. But the similarity changes in verse 25. There is a second sower who sows different seeds into the same soil. And so I'm sitting there, wait, wait. But you said in that one there was this and that and this. What I'm all I'm trying to say is this, and do you see why there could have been confusion on the part of the disciples until they get the explanation? When we read the Word, we don't see any of this opportunity or reason for confusion because we're reading it from, an experience, uh, from a context of already understanding and having received the explanation. But they're not. They're getting this the first time. So I'm assuming they're sitting there like some of us would be. What well, you just said this and that. Now you change. What does this mean? How does this function? So at this point, I'm sure the disciples are confused. So how does this parable relate to the parable of the sower? How these two relate? Now, what I want to do is skip down to Jesus' explanation in verses 36 to 43. And I think your notes hopefully have it that way. If they don't, I apologize. So let's skip 
from the parable all from verse 30. Let's go down to verse 36, and let's look at Jesus' explanation. Then Jesus left the crowds. You see, he's moving away from explaining to the crowds. He doesn't give the mystery and explanation and the revelation of the message of the kingdom to the crowds. He only gives it to his people. Then he leaves the crowd and goes into the house. And his disciples came in and said, explain to us the parable of the weed and the weeds, uh, the weeds in the field. We don't get it. We don't understand this. He said, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, and the good seed is the children of the kingdom. Ah, look at the change. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the close of the age, and the reapers are angels. So let's look at this. The disciples asked Jesus to explain which he does. First of all, there are two farmers in this one. How many farmers were in the sower? How many farmers? Just one. Remember, a man went out and he sowed among four different types of soil. There was one farmer, there was one seed, the Word of God, and there were four soils. In this one, there are two farmers. There is the Son of Man. Who is the Son of Man? The Lord Jesus. And remember, when Jesus uses the Son of Man, there is a reference here to Daniel chapter, oh boy, there goes the mind, chapter, uh, help me, Doc. I have First Samuel 7, 7 caught up in my mind right now. Where is it? When Jesus, uh, the, the Son of Man, verses 13 and 14, Daniel what, 7 and 9, one or the other, it goes brain dead right then, just right fast. Remember the, the, the prophecy of the Son of Man coming into the presence of the, uh, the Ancient of Days. Remember that. That was, the, that was the, uh, the reference here. So there's the Son of Man, Jesus, and the evil one. There are two sowers in the world. There is God, and then there is the evil one. There is one soil. And the soil is the field of the world in this particular parable. And there are two types of seed. The Son of Man is sowing into the world the seed of his children. The evil one is sowing into the world the seed of the sons of the evil one. Two types of people. We've seen this before. Two types of soil. Now two types of people. There is one harvest. And that's at the close of the age, the final judgment. It is given unto man, what? Once to die, and then the judgment. Did y'all find it, Cliff? Daniel 7, 13 and 14. Okay, Daniel 7, 13 and 14. Now, why is Jesus telling us this parable? Why is he telling us? What does this parable say to us? The Son of Man plants his good seed of his own children into the field of the world. We are the seed of God whom God has planted into the field of this whole world. But in the meantime, and at the same time alongside of us, there is an enemy in opposition to what God has done who comes into the same field and plants his sons, the weeds, or the tares. Your Bible may say tares. 
into the same field of the world, and the two grow together side by side. So what do we find in our lives? That as children of God, we are going, growing along and walking along and living along with those who are not part of the kingdom. Anybody experience being in the world among unbelievers? Anybody have unbelievers in your family? At work. I mean, I have talked to several of you in the past where the great difficulty for some, and especially for some of the ladies who have expressed this, there is an extreme difficulty in some of the places of work because there is so much, in their mind, demonic activity at work that they have a great struggle. Now, when we say demonic activity, they're not saying they're worshiping demons and they're slaughtering animals and they're, you know, hail Satan and all that. But it's just the demonic activity of living contrary to the will of God. And they have great struggles with this. And so both the saved and the unsaved are sown into the same field of the world to live side by side with the weed and the tares. Now, because of this, how are we to live among these people? What are we to do? What is the church to do? By the way, this is not a picture of believers and unbelievers in the church. Some have taught it that way, that in the church are going to be believers and unbelievers. Do I believe there are going to be believers and unbelievers in the church? Well, of course there will be. But the Word says in the field. It doesn't say in the kingdom or in the church. So let's make a distinction. In this parable, Jesus talks about the world and not the church. There is a place where there are believers and unbelievers in the church. But I don't believe this is it. This is the field. Do you notice the word the field? Where did we first see that? Do you remember where we first saw that? We saw it in the garden. In chapter 2, the Lord created man, Adam, in the field and then brought him into the garden. And then in chapter 3, the serpent was the most crafty beast of the field. And so there is a distinction between the garden of God or the place and the dwelling of God's people with God and the place of the enemy and his people. And so, in the meantime, how should we handle living in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation? How are we going to handle this? Do we handle it by withdrawing and living in little communities? Do we handle it by yelling and screaming and rebuking and condemning everyone who doesn't believe the gospel? Do we live in such a way as to ask God to take away all the unbelievers in my life? Remember what they said, what should we do? Should we go out and take out all these weeds out of here? How should we live? How should we respond? Well, Philippians 2, 14 and 15, I think, begins to give us an answer here, and I want to go through several answers, one answer, but give several portions of the answer. How do we live in a crooked and twisted, perverse generation? Now, I'm not going to talk about everything, but these will be a few thoughts for us. How do we today live among unbelievers in a way that we are pleasing to God and not drinking in and being manipulated by and controlled by the thoughts and the beliefs and the ways of the unbelieving world? Philippians 2, 14 to 15. The apostles said, do all things without grumbling or questioning. Now, that's the first problem I have. My wife would tell you I grumble too much. And the problem with my grumbling too much, 
she begins to grumble about my grumbling. Now, come on, ladies. Come on, ladies. Let's be honest. How many of you kind of grumble about your husband's whatevers? Anybody, any lady in here willing to raise a hand? Any of you? She, she would begin to get testimony from the husbands right now. <laughs> How many of us have just received tax notices? You know, property tax notices. I know they went out for some. How many of us, even if you haven't received it yet, kind of grumble about your taxes? Anybody in here, you just can't wait to pay those taxes because you just love to give Uncle Sam and, and Brother Louisiana your money. <laughs> we grumble. We complain. We, we are people who lack satisfaction and contentment in Christ. We lack it. If we didn't, we wouldn't be complaining anymore. So he says, do all things without grumbling and questioning. In other words, questioning God. How do we live in the world of unbelievers? We don't live as those who express the same kinds of attitudes as unbelievers. We are different. That you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. Remember in Matthew 13 and 4, 5, 13 and 14, what does Jesus say? You are the what? You are the salt of the world or the earth. You are the light of the world. And so we are to live in the world in such a different, radically strange way. The, the gospel and the presence of the Holy Spirit in us is being clearly manifested to the world because we're not like they are. We don't participate in the same things of the world. And it's not that we don't participate. It's not that we do this in a condemning way. We just don't do it. I remember years ago when Gene was, I've forgotten where you were working, I think at the welfare department or the kidney center or one of those places, and Gene's boss asked us to go to her house. You know, that she had a gathering of people at the house for a little dinner or remember that or whatever it was. Okay, fine. So Gene and I go in, and the first thing, now if you're in New Orleans, the first thing, you walk in the door, what do they offer you? You want a drink. Charlie, you want a drink? First thing, they offer you a drink. Now, Gene and I don't drink. Now, whether you agree with that or not is beside the point. We don't drink. Fine. We're not condemning people who do. We're not approbating those who do not. At least not very much we're not. So... <laughs> We don't drink. Okay, fine. I'm illustrating something here. We're comfortable not drinking, and we're comfortable if we're people who are drinking. Doesn't bother us. So we walk in. You like a drink? No, thank you. Okay, fine. A few minutes later, you know, we don't have a drink in the hand. You sure you don't want a drink? Uh, no, thank you. Now, I didn't say... Now, let me tell you, brother, why I don't want to drink. I'm a believer in Jesus Christ, and I think drinking is a devil, and you're going to hell because you drink. Now, I may believe that, but I didn't say it. <laughs> I just said, no, 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 thank you. I want to be able to remember what happened tonight. You know, it's just some kind of little ha-ha-ha-ha-ha. <laughs> again, she asked me again, Phil, 
do you want a drink? A few minutes later. I said, no, thank you. I'm driving home. Yeah, I'm trying to deflect the things. I'm trying not to make the lady look like she's on the spot, like there's something wrong with her. Just no thanks. Finally, I had to say, we don't drink. But it was after about four or five deflections. You see, our purpose as believers is not to bring an attitude that condemns them because of how we relate to them saying that they are wrong and they're being judged. All we need to do is to be among them serving the Lord with joy and allowing the presence of the Holy Spirit to emanate the righteousness of Christ out from us as salt and light, and they will be uncomfortable with that. Why? Because the Holy Spirit has come to do what three things? To do what? To do what? Convict. What are the three things? He's come to do that. The Holy Spirit comes to reveal sin. It's not my job to reveal the sin of the unbelieving. The Holy Spirit does that. Believers are to live alongside of unbelievers without becoming enmeshed in their sinful mores or their customs. To what extent are we becoming enmeshed in the things of the world? I don't want to know in one way how much I'm enmeshed in the things of the world. I think if the Lord would show me a spiritual x-ray, there are all kinds of tentacles of the world around my spirit or my soul. And I want the Holy Spirit to regularly identify these so that I can cooperate with his pruning of these tentacles and taking them off because if you've seen some of these trees where the little bitty vines begin to grow up, little bitty, 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 bitty things, and a huge oak tree, give it long enough, those things will strangle the life out of the oak tree. Give it long enough, they will kill a great and mighty oak tree. I don't want to be like that. But we find ourselves enmeshed in the world. How are we to handle this? 2 Corinthians 6, 14 and 16, do not be yoked together with unbelievers. For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? What harmony is there between Christ and Belial? What does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. Our relationship to unbelievers is to be on a different level and with a different purpose than it is with believers. Does that mean I'm not supposed to associate with unbelievers? Absolutely not. I think we need to run into their midst to be, in a good way, aggressively pursuing them so they can see the superior power of the God, love of God in us. But we are not called to fellowship out of the same source as they are. We fellowship out of the love of God and for the love of God. They fellowship out of the evil one and for the evil one. And so if we're with unbelievers long enough, 
You don't have to try to create a discussion about eternal life or the gospel. How many of us have seen that if we're with an unbeliever or these folks long enough, if we're living faithfully, how many of us have seen that these issues begin to come up? You don't have to carry your big Bible in and begin to preach to them. I remember years ago, Jean and I were at Joni's house, a friend of Jean's, and she had her young man friend there. And we all talk about stuff. And Jean and, and Joan went into the kitchen, and I'm with the young man sitting there. You know, we're chit-chatting, but both of us young, but at that time, you know, we were in our 30s. And I'm sitting there. He's chit-chatting. I'm chit-chatting. He's talking about Colorado skiing. And I'm thinking inside of myself, yeah, you know, but I don't care about this. Is there any way to share something of the gospel? I, you know, I don't, I'm, I'm listening, but, you know, that's not the issue with me, whether he can ski this way and that way and wherever he went, whatever. That's fine, but that wasn't my prime interest. And so here's what I did. I made a mistake. I asked the Holy Spirit, would you give me opportunity to share something about you? That's all I said. I didn't say skiing is of the devil when you shouldn't ski and don't ever take a vacation or whatever. And so he's going along. And when I tell you this, I really mean it literally. In the middle of a sentence, for instance, and we were going to ski, do you believe that Jesus is coming back? Have you ever asked God for something when he does it? You're sitting there thinking, that didn't just happen. <laughs> Remember, Peter's knocking on the door. Let us in. Let us in. They've all prayed. Release Peter. Release these guys. Release them. Bang, bang, bang. We're here. And they say, oh, he can't be there. <laughs> Remember that in Acts. Jerry, he absolutely, in the middle of a sentence, stopped and turned around and went the other way with the conversation. I was so floored I couldn't say anything. No. We create an atmosphere that allows unbelievers, as best they can, be comfortable with us and relax with us as best they can. Now, some never will, but as best we can. And ask the Holy Spirit in the midst of the activity or the conversation or whatever, Lord, give me something that I can share the gospel and as we're chit-chatting, you know, you can always drop, you know, well, yeah, the Lord did this or thankful for that or at church the other day. We can drop these, quote, Christian terminologies on them because they don't use that. And they come across to them more powerfully than we think. How we relate to the opposition of the sons of the evil one. How do we relate to this opposition? Romans 12, 17, and 18. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. How do we relate to this strong opposition? If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Our walk in this world is to be demonstrating the superior power and effect of the gospel as we love and serve first one another by demonstrating the love of God. The most powerful weapon of righteousness to this world is not our getting in the face of believers and saying you're going to hell or Jesus, you better receive him, whatever. The most powerful weapon of all is what Jesus talks about in John chapter 13, verse 14. And he says it, wash one another's feet. Then in verse 34, love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another, for love is the fulfillment of the law, which Paul says. That's the most powerful method of living amongst the opposers of the world in a way that demonstrates salt and light. How do we live 
among one another. How do we relate to one another is the very foundation of how we are to live out there. To the extent that we are living among the brethren and loving and caring and serving and ministering and washing feet and praying for one another and fellowshipping, to the extent that we are doing that, we are being built up as God's light, as salt, and as we go into the world, that great work of God that is occurring among us will begin to be ministered out there, and we won't even realize what we're doing. We're not even realizing we're doing it. How many of us have seen God work among folks out there and we didn't even realize we were ministering? I remember A.J. DeSherry one time was sharing with me. He says, I can't believe it. I can't believe it. I said, what happened? He said, we would, wherever they were, and, and something happened. He said, and I found myself saying all kinds of things that you had said in Sunday school. Oh, my, that, that's, not, that's strange. But what he was getting at is I didn't know all of this was in me until I started saying it. And when I said it, I was marveling at what God had taught me. It's in us. And it's cultivated by the way we relate to one another. It's in us. The Word of God is in us, isn't it? But it's cultivated and marinated and smells good and tastes good by the way we relate to one another. But you see, we also have to remember that we're living in a spiritually hostile world ruled by the God of this world. Remember, 2 Corinthians 4, 4, we are living in a hostile environment who wages war, unrelenting war, against the purposes of God. So we are to be used as instruments of righteousness. We are to be strong in the Lord and in His mighty power. We are to be putting on the full armor of God so that we can stand against all the schemes of the enemy. So how are we to live? How are we, how are we to oppose these flaming arrows of Satan? How are we to oppose the opposers to defend ourselves from being harmed by that and then to be able not when we're not harmed, or even if we are harmed, to deal with it quickly, and then to come back with something that is ministering the truth of the gospel. Here's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 3 and 5. Though we walk in the flesh, we're not waging war according to the flesh. One of the biggest issues I see when we meet with husbands and wives, and this is for all of us, one of the biggest issues I see, what sin does in a husband and wife relationship is to begin to convince at least one of the parties, perhaps both, that he or she is the enemy. How do you know that? Because in your mind you begin to think about the what he does and how he does it and why he can't do this and what she said there and how she did that. Is this common among us? Yes. And what does that say? We are putting the face of our spouse as the issue of sin. Rather than the enemy is sin, is the flesh, is Satan, is the opportunity of the enemy to stir up the weaknesses and the different dispositions and attitudes 
and the ways of life that she had or I had or who whatever and bring all of this to bear and the enemy uses this as fertile soil to create relational strife and strain. Brothers, your enemy is not your wife. Sisters, your enemy is not your husband. It's sin. I remember doing a funeral here for Mary Richard's son, and he had died of an overdose. I remember in the middle of the service, I just said this to Jordan, who is his daughter, who still comes to church here. I said, Jordan, be angry, be angry, but not at your dad. Be angry at sin. Sin is our enemy. Satan is our enemy. Not the person you live with. Not your mom and them. Sin is. He says, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We are destroying arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. And listen to this. And we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. If I am tempted to go before God and complain about Jean or just walk outside and say, I don't know why she did that. I don't know how she can be thinking that. I think she, you, have anybody ever had these kinds of struggles? Do any of us think about our spouse or our friends in any of these kinds of terms? Am I the only one? <laughs> Who just said you are? We do this. And what I've learned is not, not to do it because the enemy's always going to fire arrows. It's always going to happen. God, he is faithful to shoot arrows at us. But Sarah, when you get a thought about Charlie, you know, when the thought comes in like an arrow, Wendy, when you get a thought about the way Steve did something. Johnny, when you get a thought of Tiff. When we get these thoughts flow about wrong, you know. What does it say? Take every, what? How many? How many baths? Every thought, what? Captive. What does that mean? I get my thought. I get thoughts about my wife. She's not a perfect person. And every time that arrow comes in and crosses the threshold of my mind, it has to come in to connect with something. I have to hear it some kind of way. I have to take it captive. What does that mean? I have to first identify it. This is not Holy Spirit thought. Amen? Can you please identify this this morning? These thoughts and attitudes and feelings and discussions and conversations inside of your head are not of the Holy Spirit. They are of the unholy spirit who is called in Revelation 12, 10, what? The accuser of the brethren. And so, Lester, the moment I here I thought, I realize, I, I realize it. I don't, it doesn't, I, I've, I'm there now after all these years, I do realize it. Now here's my battle, my choice, my whatever. Do I 
cast it down and say, I will not think that, or do I continue to do it because Gene said something or did something I didn't like? Do I deny my fleshly appetite to complain about my wife and to criticize her in my mind, or do I put it down denying that fleshly attitude and taking up the mercy and love of God and allowing the Holy Spirit to cleanse that from my mind? I must say no. Amen? We have to start doing this. We're living in an opposing world. There are weeds out there. There are weeds in my mind. Here's what James says. James 4, 7. What does it say? First, submit yourselves to God. First to God. Then what? Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. He will flee from you. Draw then near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hearts, your sinners, and purify your hearts. Your hands, your sinners, and purify your hearts. He's saying to believers who are saints that you're sinning. You see, the righteousness of Christ is our greatest weapon. So what happens at the end? The Son of Man will gather all these weeds, verses 40 to 43. He will gather them all together. And on that day, great day of the judgment, we don't have to worry about today they're getting away with something. Nobody gets away with anything ever. Nobody ever will, has, and is getting away with anything. Nobody. All of our stuff has been judged as forgiven in Christ. We didn't get away with it. You understand that, don't you? And all of the stuff of unbelievers, no matter what it is, is going to be in the judgment. Today they rejoice, but their condemnation on that day will experience no rejoicing. You see, today may seem as if Satan's day, it is Satan's day. Any of you ever feel that way? This is crazy. The world's out of, yes, it is. It is crazy. It is going to hell in a handbasket. It is all true, yes. But the day of God's reckoning is a coming. When the Son of Glory will bring all this thing, all these things to His conclusion. Today, we are to live in the light of that day because today we live toward the consummation of the age, which will result in our individually standing before this judge of the world, and then He will evaluate us. And on that day, I want to be found as faithful as a man can be. Do you agree with me for that? in yourself. Amen? It's okay. It's just Henry back there. Or is that Atticus? Okay? We want to be as faithful as we can. Therefore, remember the words of Jesus in John 16, 33. There's going to be all kind of stuff going on in this world, all kind of stuff, but be of good heart or cheer. Why? Because I have overcome the world. Amen? So next week we'll do the rest, I think, of the chapter.